Paul, why did the uterus get kicked out of Hollywood? I I don't know, Matt. Why don't you tell me? It's because it was overreacting. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> you want me to explain it, Paul? No, no. I think the lesson probably the better. <laughs> All right, I'll just hang my head in shame and let's start the show. <laughs> I know, Matt. I can't believe you went there. I mean, jokes about women's health are not funny. Period. Oh, boo. Double T, Paul. <laughs> boo to all of this. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. On tonight's show, we're talking about abnormal uterine bleeding with a fantastic guest, Dr. Holly Wong Cummings. And Paul, before we introduce our fantastic co-host and our guests, can you please remind the audience, what what is it that we do on The Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews from your clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you alluded to, to keep the audience in suspense for all of three seconds, I will now reveal our exciting uh, co-host to the amazing <laughs> producer extraordinaire, uh, medical educator extraordinaire, everything extraordinaire, Dr. Molly Hoiblein. Dr. Hoiblein, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be back with you guys and happy to be back with the regular Curbsiders feed here. Uh, we had a great conversation today with our guest, uh, Dr. Holly Wong Cummings. We talk about how to diagnose abnormal uterine bleeding, go through the palm coin um, framework for thinking about what's causing the abnormal bleeding, and then review practical steps to treat that so that our patients don't need to suffer. And really, the majority of this is things that primary care providers can do. Um, most of the treatments are not surgical, and so we should feel more confident helping our patients manage this. Uh, Dr. Holly Wong Cummings, MD, MPH, is an assistant professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Cummings is a full-scope OB-GYN with clinical interests in breastfeeding medicine and transgender gynecologic care, including full surgical practice. Her academic interests lie in medical education and legislative advocacy. Outside of work, she finds peace in her garden. We got to start the garden, Paul. (laughs) Keep saying it. (laughs) All right. Before before we get right into the interview, a reminder that this and most episodes will be available for CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Holly, it's been so great to meet you. And now for the audience to meet you. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're going to jump right into it. Molly, do you want to bring us to a case from Cashlack? So we have Melissa. She's a 46-year-old woman. She's a non-smoker, BMI of 30. She has a history of PCOS, and she's coming in today complaining of heavy menstrual bleeding. She says in the past four months or so, her periods have just been uncontrollably heavy. She'll bleed for about 10 days, and three or four of those days will be really very heavy. Uh, In the past two cycles, she's had kind of shorter cycles, only every 21 days, so she feels like she's bleeding all the time. When she comes in today, she says the bleeding's been heavy for about five days this cycle, and she just wants it to stop. For the past few days, she's bleeding through a tampon in less than two hours and seeing more clots. So let's just start by taking a step back and review what happens during a normal menstrual cycle. 
Yeah. So for many of us, this might not be something we've thought about since medical school, and you may have put it out of your brain the same way I've put many other things out of my brain. Um, but when we think about the menstrual cycle, you know, the the job of the female reproductive system and, you know, so that's anybody with ovaries and a uterus is to try to get us pregnant. Mother nature wants us to procreate and pass on our genes. And so the menstrual cycle is this really intricate um, pattern and interplay of a whole bunch of different hormones that are coming from the hypothalamus, the pituitary, um, and then uh, the ovaries, and they are sending messages to the uterus. And what those patterns, what those hormones are doing are um, telling your ovary to ovulate or release an egg, and then um, simultaneously telling the lining of the uterus, the endometrium, to build up and then shed. And the shedding happens if um, the person who ovulates does not get pregnant, so if that egg is not fertilized by sperm. Um, and so classically, we um, time the menstrual cycle um, by the first day of bleeding. So we'll call that cycle day one. Cycle day one through maybe five to seven would be the period itself, the menstrual period or the time of the days of bleeding. Um, and then the bleeding stops. Um, the egg is released. So ovulation happens generally around day 12 to 14. So that's when you would expect fertilization to occur if it's going to. And then if fertilization doesn't occur, then usually around day 27, 28, the shedding of that endometrial lining happens. And so that would be day one of your next cycle. And so that's the menstrual cycle, the normal menstrual cycle in a nutshell. Paul, you remember all that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually going to graph out for you guys all the different phases of the hormones, if that was going to be helpful for you. But we can... <laughs> I'm sure you remember the chart where there's like, you know, the FSH or the progesterone and the LH. Things are spiking. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's, absolutely. No, I got it. But I, I will, and that, this is where I, I reveal that I'm a dumb guy. Um, I, I do I do find the nomenclature around um, abnormal bleeding kind of bewildering, like the menorrhagia, metorrhagia, metorrhagia, and dysfunctional uterine bleeding and, and, and abnormal uterine bleeding. Can you... Can you sort of talk us through the accepted nomenclature for what we're describing in this case and sort of how to talk about it so we so we don't sound um, as confused as, as I am sometimes? So there used to be a lot of those terms that people would use, the ones that you mentioned. Maybe around 2011 or so, um, the International um, Federation of um, Gynecology and Obstetrics, which is abbreviated FIGO, the FIGO organization decided to all come together and agree on a standard nomenclature that's all based on abnormal uterine bleeding or AUB. So we no longer use DUB or dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Um, I never use metroraja or menometroraja. Um, I will sometimes still say menorrhagia, which specifically just means heavy periods. Although even there, the accepted terminology is really just heavy menstrual bleeding. So you have heavy menstrual bleeding and then um, AUB. And then within um, the overarching category of AUB or abnormal uterine bleeding, it's broken up into two categories um, that are, and it's often um, referred to as the palm coin nomenclature. So on the sort of when I draw this out for my students, I literally draw, you know, I've got palm coin across the top and down the left, I write P-A-L-M. Um, and those are the four structural causes of abnormal uterine bleeding. So P is for polyps. A is for adenomyosis, 
L is for leiomyoma, which is fibroids, and then M is malignancy or pre-malignancy or hyperplasia. And then down the right side of your table, you'll have COIN, although it's not spelled correctly. It's C-O-E-I-N, and this and these are non-structural causes. So C is coagulopathy. You've got things like um, von Willebrand's disease. Um, o is ovulatory dysfunction, so things like PCOS. I is uh, iatrogenic, which would be, you know, any numbers of medications that we give to people that cause bleeding. So, you know, patients who are on therapeutic anticoagulation, people who are on hormonal types of um, contraceptives that are then interfering with the menstrual cycle, Um and things like that. And then uh, E is endometrial. Endometrial causes of abnormal bleeding would be things like low-lying endometrial infections um, or even, frankly, cervical infections if you're not sure um, where the bleeding's coming from. So like a low-lying endometritis, chronic endometritis would be an example of an E. And then N, not otherwise specified. So all those other things that you can't figure out. Really crammed in the acronym there, Paul. Oh, uh... yeah. All of it. Palm coin. And so when I write my notes, for instance, like, I'll write the patient has AUB hyphen L, you know, if they have fibroids. Um, And so it's really helpful when you're talking to people and when you're, um, you know, working this out in your head to organize it in those ways. And people can have multiple causes, too. I wanted to ask if there's anything else about the history, because basically you're, you're giving us the differential diagnosis there uh, with with the, those categories. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you listen for in the history that makes you start to key in on one one or the other as far as as far as your differential? In terms of differential, um, I think a lot about the timing. So, for instance, this patient, I know we're saying the past two cycles were only twenty one days apart. So, first of all, I want to make sure that the patient is measuring that from the first day of bleeding till the first day of the next bleed. Sometimes you'll have patients measuring from the last day of one bleeding episode until the first day of the next bleeding episode. Mm-hmm. So, that's an artificially short um, count. So, I want to make sure the patient's counting correctly from day one to day one. Um, what were the periods like before that? I don't necessarily need like the last 12 months of dates of somebody's periods, but you know, nowadays many people are tracking them on, on apps and, and, you know, their phone calendars. And so they often can tell me all the days in the last year they've been bleeding. I also think about whether, um, the patient, presumably this patient based on the case hasn't skipped any cycles, but you know, have there been any months where they don't get a bleed? And then also importantly, um, has there been any intermenstrual bleeding? So any spotting between periods, any other unexpected bleeding, um, and things like that. And then in terms of other history, because as we know from medical school, the answer is always you want to know more history. I want to know how she's <laughs> preventing pregnancy. <laughs> okay. And um, what is, yeah, how is she preventing pregnancy? And, you know, what are her plans for pregnancy? And it's in my day, it's not fair to assume that somebody at age 46 is not planning any more uh, pregnancy. So I always ask. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Think about someone who has changed your life for the better. How incredible would it be if your company could find more of those life-changing people right when you needed them? If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. 
find top talent tasks with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. One of the things that we love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy, especially with a feature like Instant Match. With Instant Match, the candidates that you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it through search, according to U.S. Indeed data. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Indeed does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job, and boom, and Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. See more and visit Indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Again, that is Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost for application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think of the role of the physical exam here? Um, I mean, many of those things you can't really evaluate on, on physical exams. So what would you recommend that we check out for someone like this? Yeah, so I'm aware that the um, ACIP does not recommend routine bimanual exams. I would argue that in this case, you know, this is not somebody coming for a well checkup who potentially is getting um, a pelvic exam for no good reason. I think there is value to the pelvic exam here. I think on abdominal exam, sometimes you'll find patients with really massive fibroids that are palpably uh, you know, on an abdominal exam. So that's always notable. And then on a pelvic exam, um, I think it's helpful to do a speculum exam and look at the cervix um, because sometimes you'll see, you know, gross abnormalities on the cervix. And the bimanual exam in this case, I think can be really helpful to, for determining the size of the uterus. I would say it is helpful when I do these exams and find a polyp, you know, not so much for someone who's bleeding this heavily, but having intermenstrual spotting to just say, you know, this is most likely the situation here. We see a polyp. Let's deal with it and hopefully manage your symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. It feels really good to be able to do something there. It seems like someone with my skill level, probably the patient's going to be getting some other workup uh, imaging or labs. So for for a patient like this that we've presented here, uh, what what might be your next steps if if you didn't clinch the diagnosis with just the physical exam? You know, I I know you're, um, you know, kind of being self deprecating there, but I would encourage you to do pelvic exams. Um, I really uh, appreciate my um, primary care and internal medicine colleagues who are doing this kind of care for our shared patients. Um, it's really helpful. I think it's a skill that, you know, you can definitely, that you have and that you can definitely use. And maybe you need more practice, but I would definitely encourage you to do it. So I actually, I don't mind sharing that my primary care doctor does my PEP tests. So, you know, I think it's definitely something that your patients can get from you and and there's a value, you know, a value and an added added bonus. That said, I now forget exactly what you asked me, Matt. I'm sorry. Uh, we so we were our patient Melissa. She's forty six, right? This is the patient we had presented to you, and the question was: if we had done the physical exam, did a bimanual exam, a speculum exam, did an abdominal exam, really didn't, if we didn't clinch the diagnosis from that, what other workup might 
might you be doing for her? You know, I think the role of a blood count, um, it's not unreasonable to check some blood work. In my experience, if somebody's only had four months of really heavy periods, they're probably not anemic, but it's always worth checking, um, you know, if there's no real reason not to check labs. So a hemoglobin would be useful. A TSH would be useful because thyroid dysfunction can result in... um, abnormal bleeding. And then a pelvic uh, ultrasound is always useful. Um, And, you know, I send my patients to radiology as well for that. So that's definitely helpful to have. Is there a stepwise approach? I mean, I obviously look at the patient in front of you, but do you sort of wait for the labs to come back before you ultrasound? I feel like that's always... I shouldn't say always, but in in practice, if you see a patient like this, you might order a battery of labs, expect them to come back normal, give them an ultrasound in hand. And I guess the question is like, does... Does every patient warrant an ultrasound? It just seems from the outside, potentially kind of based on comfortable for the patient. You almost kind of want to avoid it if you can, even though I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do. But I mean, I guess, how are you making the determination who gets ultrasonography, who does not sort of how does that, where is that in terms of your, in terms of helping you triage things? Yeah, I think, and I think this might um, depend on what your plan is with the patient for, you know, how much you're going to manage this bleeding versus are you going to refer to GYN? I think if you're going to refer to GYN, it is helpful to have an ultrasound, not mandatory, but certainly helpful. And I think if this patient then gets to me, I would probably order an ultrasound if nothing else, you know, very clear has has come up from the physical exam. In terms of invasiveness, it generally does involve both a transabdominal and transvaginal scan. The transvaginal probes are pretty small, um, and I always mention to patients that they have the right to decline the vaginal portion if they prefer. And, you know, in my experience, the sonographers are really good about, you know, showing the patient the probe, um, lots of positioning and mitigation techniques for managing the discomfort. I don't know what this patient's pregnancy history is, but honestly, most patients who have um, given birth are comfortable or willing to tolerate the transvaginal ultrasound in the name of potentially getting useful information out of it. So if we have an ultrasound that shows nothing clear, I think it is still helpful to know. So there's benefit to sort of like the negative test here. Um, I think if you or I were seeing the patient and we're making sort of an empiric plan for management, maybe with some medications, it's reasonable to do that without getting an ultrasound first, you know, with the consideration that maybe if things aren't better or things have changed in three to six months, then, you know, an ultrasound is something to remember we haven't done yet. I was going to ask, do you try to counsel your patients to get the ultrasound done on a particular day of their cycle or it doesn't really matter? Ideally, you want to get it done in the follicular follicular phase. So that's the first half of the menstrual cycle after the heaviest bleeding has stopped, but before ovulation has occurred, um, because that's the time in the cycle when the endometrial lining is thinnest. If it's going to be a scheduling issue for the patient, then I'd rather you know have any ultrasound than make a big deal about timing. I was going to ask, could you... <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about sonohysterography, which I may be mispronouncing. I feel like I, we read some practice bulletins in advance of this, and there was sort of loving talk about how great it was at sort of examining sort of internal topography and that kind of stuff. And it's not something that was on my radar at all, embarrassingly. So is that something that is uncommonly in practice? Should we be thinking about that at all, or is that best deferred to the, the experts? Even in my world, it's not something that I do personally, and our 
the radiology department at my institution doesn't perform them routinely. So you definitely need to know um, what your institution offers and, you know, who's able to perform it. So I do have a couple of subspecialty colleagues who can do them. uh, But because they're not readily available to me, I don't routinely do them either. But the idea is that you're injecting um, some sort of generally saline into the uterus. So you um, place a catheter into through the cervix into the uterine cavity and inject um, saline often and through that. And then simultaneously, you're doing a transabdominal ultrasound so that you can see the fluid pass through the uterine cavity and then out the fallopian tubes. And, um, and it can give you an idea of the internal contours of the endometrial cavity. And how does that differ from a hysterosalpingogram? So a hysterosalpingogram is um, logistically slightly similar. This is generally done in radiology because it's done with um, under fluoroscopy. So a catheter is placed into the patient's cervix. Um, and they're placed under the x-ray machine, and then some sort of a fluoro dye is injected into the uterine cavity, and a series of x-ray films are snapped. And so they'll have the pa- they'll inject the dye into the uterus, and then have the patient turn to one side and then the other, and you're actually looking to see if the dye spills out the tubes. So the hysterosalpingogram is technically only designed to check for tubal patency, but often in the process, you can get a sense of the endometrial cavity as well. So bottom line, we don't need to feel bad that we have not <laughs> You do not need these. to feel bad that you're order, <laughs> not ordering those. Yeah. I think a, a regular pelvic ultrasound is perfect. And honestly, if, if I have a pelvic ultrasound that shows something abnormal, my next step would be direct visualization, meaning like in the operating room. So I wouldn't... F- I usually in my routine, you know, cases would not follow up an ultrasound with a hysterosalpingogram or a sonohysterogram. I guess the last part of workup, I mean, giving, you, you gave us the differential diagnosis includes malignancy. So endometrial biopsy is something that's considered. Does the age of the patient ever make, like, I, I know postmenopausal, it seems like, you know, typically those patients are getting an ultrasound and, and a biopsy, but, uh, does the age matter? Um, and are most patients with abnormal uterine bleeding getting biopsies at some point if it if it goes on? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that um, when I was in training, I sort of struggled a lot to wrap my head around and my current residents are trying to wrap their heads around it. So when do we biopsy? When do we not? Strictly speaking, you'll hear people say that anybody in their 40s with any abnormal uterine bleeding of any sort should have endometrial sampling. And many of us, you know, either currently train or have trained in Philadelphia, which is a not great place from a medical legal um, liability (laughs) standpoint. And so certainly there's an attitude of, you know, you should biopsy it if you can to make sure you're not missing anything. But I think from an objective um, perspective, Um, I really do think about the patient in front of me and what their goals are. And I think this is a place where shared decision-making is really important. So personally, I never um, sort of surprise somebody with, uh, we should do an endometrial biopsy today, no matter what, before you're leaving, if they weren't planning on that. Because I do think that's a little bit cruel. Because I, you know, it is uncomfortable and people deserve to have taken some ibuprofen in advance and prepped themselves Um, mentally for it. 
Um, and so I'm perfectly fine with, you know, starting a workup or even initiate initiating an empiric plan, maybe with a plan to come back for biopsy if needed in the future. Other times I have patients who I know from, from the time they've made the appointment and the phone triage that the biopsy is recommended, you know, I'm recommending the biopsy and this has been told to the patient and they're on board with it. So, you know, there is a plan in place for that. I also think the way I practice, you know, if what we're worried about with an endometrial biopsy is endometrial hyperplasia or neoplasia, and one of the treatments potentially is hormonal medication like progesterone, if the ultimate plan that the patient's walking out of the room with that day involves a progestin, then in my mind, we're sort of covering our bases. And so I do think it's safe to, you know, continue on for a few months and see how the symptoms resolve before, you know, jumping straight to a biopsy. Oh, I just, uh, you, you said you're there, if they're going on a progestin, is that because um, it won't be building, progester, progesterone or progestin is not going to be building up the lining and potentially growing anything that might be there. Um, so you feel comfortable delaying the biopsy in as opposed to someone who is going home on an estrogen? Probably nobody would be going on an, uh, going home on an estrogen alone. But if we think back to, you know, how does endometrial hyperplasia occur? It occurs in the presence of unopposed estrogen on the endometrial lining. And one of the treatments for hyperplasia can be, with counseling, progesterone treatment. So for instance, you'll hear about people who have endometrial hyperplasia or sometimes even early endometrial cancers who are treated with progesterone therapy or progestin um, intrauterine devices, IUDs, um, because the progesterone is protective um, for the endometrial lining. And so if your treatment is going to involve a progestin already, right, you're sort of, you know, covering your bases, even if there is a secret hyperplasia that you haven't identified yet by not doing a biopsy. Got it. Okay. And I, I'm dangerously close, Molly, to pulling us into talking about treatment, but I don't, I don't think we're ready there, <laughs> ready there yet. So what else did you, did you want to ask more about imaging? I know that was part of it or. Well, I think, I think also just thinking about this patient who's 46, she has a BMI of 30. She has a history of PCOS. Do those historical features kind of push you more towards biopsy that she's somebody at a little higher risk or you're still comfortable just kind of watching and if you can manage it, the bleeding medically, not being as concerned? Yeah, those are definitely, um, you know, additional risk factors for hyperplasia. I'm curious about what exactly her history of PCOS is personally. So, you know, is she somebody who has gone long amounts of time, you know, multiple months in a row without a period in the past? That is the time frame over which the endometrial hyperplasia can build up or develop. The higher BMI is a risk factor for endometrial hyperplasia as well because it's the excess adipose tissue in our bodies. And I don't know what the examples are of this in the um, internal medicine world, but I know I was always trained that, you know, fat cells are sort of inert and inactive, but we now know they're hormonally active. And so they are converting peripherally to estrogen as well. So anybody with a higher BMI in essence has you know, excess unopposed estrogen in their system. So those are definitely risk factors. And again, I'm not saying I would never biopsy her. Um, I think if this patient was, I, I would bring it up if this patient were willing to do the biopsy today. And I, and I have had patients who say, 
absolutely, I wasn't planning for it, but I'm here. Let's do it. It's totally reasonable. If they say, well, let's get the ultrasound first. Let me come back in a month. Let me try this medication. I think that's reasonable as well. I like that because I, I don't know if they're actually true guidelines, but I feel like I've definitely read anyone over 40 or over 45 should be biopsied. And that's like all of my patients, which right, right. most of them don't want to have that happen. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's our, our general recommendation as well. So I'm not saying don't biopsy. I guess what I'm narrowing in on is the timeline in which we're doing that with the patient. And you'll have some patients who after counseling, you know, don't want anything done in the office and they would prefer to do a DNC, a dilation and keratage in the operating room. And that's something I would offer too. You know, I know that's not what you're offering, but it's all worth a discussion. And so I think, you know, the number of people who make it through their 40s with no biopsy is, you know, potentially on the lower side. It's a very common occurrence. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a existential question of if it's overkill or not, you know, we do find abnormalities. And so I think those patients are happy that we found them. Let's, let's do a little bit of a recap. So as Paul asked you the question about nomenclature and we we're using the term abnormal uterine bleeding now, we don't have to remember the, you know, metro raja, those sort of things. Or how to spell them more importantly. How to spell them. Yes. And we, we split them into two columns. There's the structural, that's the palm part of the mnemonic, and the non-structural, that's the coin part. So the, the structural polyps, adenomyosis, uh, fibroids is leomyomas, and malignancy or hyperplasia. And then on the non-structural side, we have coagulopathy, uh, I believe it was ovulatory dysfunction, endometrial causes, iatrogenic causes, and then not otherwise specified and the workup, we're going to do a pelvic exam, a uh, speculum exam, look at the cervix, and attempt a bimanual exam as well. And then the, the lab workup is pretty basic. Make sure they're not pregnant. You said uh, a CBC, check of their thyroid, and a pelvic ultrasound, which uh, we talked about extensively. And then whether or not they get an endometrial biopsy was where we were just at in the discussion. So Molly, what's where are we going to go to next with this case? Yeah, so we were excellent internists and ordered a pelvic ultrasound, which showed a two centimeter subserosal fibroid, adenomyosis, and a 16 millimeter endometrial stripe. So let's break it down a little bit. Um, which fibroids are actually related to heavy bleeding? And when should a PCP consider referring patients for specific fibroid treatment with gynecology versus just initiating hormonal treatment um, that might be pretty much the same whether they have a fibroid or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So fibroids are really common. Um, up to 65 to 75% of people with a uterus have fibroids. And they range from, you know, really small one centimeter, sub-centimeter ones that because our radiologists are so good and the, the ultrasound machines are so sensitive, we can pick them up to, um, you know, people with multiple massive fibroids who are walking around looking like they have a full-term pregnancy. And so in my world, a two centimeter fibroid is small. I would say anything under about four to five centimeters is considered small. But regardless of size or location, they all contribute to heavier periods. So somebody with a fibroid, any fibroids, any size is going to have heavier periods in general than somebody without fibroids. Mm -hmm. 
the fibroids, if you recall, can be in three different locations in the uterus. So they can be like really hanging off the outside of the uterus. I refer to them with patients as like Mickey Mouse ears, and those would be the pedunculated ones. They can be subserosal, as in this patient. So that's in the uterine muscle layer. Um, and often, if you're looking directly at a uterus, you're d- directly looking at the ultrasound, you can sort of see that there's a bulge there, but it's certainly within the muscle layer of the uterus. And then you can have submucosal fibroids, which are ones that are pushing into the endometrial cavity. And in general, the submucosal ones will cause more heavy bleeding than the subserosal or the pedunculated ones, but they can really all contribute to heavy bleeding. I think in terms of when do fibroids need to be referred to GYN, I think would be if the if either you suspect or the patient desires surgical management would really be the only, you know, true reason to refer. There are primary care doctors who do IUDs um, insertions. And so if that's you, you can go ahead and manage this um, with an IUD. If you would be referring to GYN for an IUD, you can refer for that. But yeah, if you're going to manage with an oral medication of some sort, um, then I don't think you have to refer to GYN at all. And I feel like we're seeing adenomyosis more and more on ultrasounds as kind of the technology is improving. How do you talk to patients about that? What's your spiel for explaining it? I'm a visual learner and I'm a visual teacher. So I always draw a picture to the patient. Usually like at our office, you know, the face sheet gets put on the door and at the end it gets thrown out if we don't do anything else with it. So on the back of it, I draw the patient's uterus and a little schematic um, and I'll, you know, draw on the diagram of where their fibroids are. So they really get that visual. And um, what I explain about adenomyosis is that the lining cells of the the uterus, those endometrial cells, that's what usually builds up and then sheds each month. Um, And adenomyosis is a condition where those endometrial cells get into the muscle layer of the uterus. We don't really know how or why it happens, um, but it does. And because our ultrasound technology has gotten so good, we're able to see that more often these days than, say, like 20, 30 years ago. So adenomyosis is the condition in which those endometrial cells get into the uterine lining or into the uterine muscle layer. And when the lining cells bleed and shed, the, sh- the bleeding is also happening in the uterine muscle. And so that's a very painful process. And so adenomyosis is a condition characterized by heavy periods and also painful periods. And when the report, God bless, like you say, our radiologists are great. And oftentimes if there's something to do with the abnormal endometrial thickness, to like, you know, OB-GYN consultation recommended or sampling recommended, which uh, bless them. But when you when you see those reports and look at the numbers, like what what things stand out or what are you looking for in terms of comments on the, the endometrium itself? So it is important to distinguish here that we're talking about a premenopausal patient as opposed to a postmenopausal patient. So in a postmenopausal patient, somebody who has gone more than a year without any periods, generally in their late 40s to early 50s, any finding of endometrial thickness in a postmenopausal patient, you know, warrants evaluation. And so that would be um, five millimeters of thickness or more. In a premenopausal patient, it's totally normal for the lining to be a different measurement throughout the menstrual cycle. And so if you ultrasounded someone every day for an entire menstrual cycle, you'll see that lining build up and then shed. Um, and so there is not really a number to say, you know, this is too thick and therefore it warrants 
biopsy. I'm concerned about hyperplasia. The day that the ultrasound is done, the thickness of the stripe could be predictive of how much bleeding, how much blood, you know, products are still in there that the patient has to bleed. And so if I were seeing the patient on this day, I might say, yeah, you've still got, you know, heavy bleeding to go versus if on the day of the ultrasound, um, you know, her endometrial stripe was two millimeters. I'm not surprised if she's saying she's not bleeding. I wouldn't be explaining it too much to the patient at all. I wouldn't be making too much of a note of it. Well, I think those that is a good wrap up for kind of ultrasound findings, unless there's anything else that you sort of look for on ultrasound or, or things that you see that are helpful in terms of nailing down the diagnosis. I mean, the other thing um, that often we can see on ultrasound are endometrial polyps. And so that would be a good reason to refer to GYN. When we see polyps, we do recommend removing them. Um, because they can have a very small risk of hyperplasia just within the polyp themselves. And so that would be a reason for surgical removal. But those are the big, thing, big things I'm looking for on ultrasound, those structural causes. Molly, is it time to get into treatment? I think so, yeah. So Melissa's exhausted by the amount of bleeding that she's had and really just wants it to stop immediately. So what kind of options do we have for acute treatment of heavy bleeding? In terms of acute treatment, um, there are a variety of uh, medications available, um, hormonal and non-hormonal. So the hormonal ones are all various combinations of estrogens and progestins. Um, and generally, your choices are a progestin-only medication. These would be things like medroxyprogesterone or norethindrone. Um, combined uh, hormonal contraceptives, um, you know, any number of the oral contraceptive pills that are available to us, and we can totally go through uh, selection. Um, so tranexamic acid, I explained to patients, is a non-hormonal me medication that um, helps uh, their body stop active bleeding. So, you know, it's like when you get a cut and your body has to make a scab, um, like you get a paper cut and that same thing is happening inside the uterus and the tranexamic acid helps with that clotting cascade to help the clot form or the scab form on the lining of the uterus. Mm -hmm. So those are all the, uh, you know, acute uh, treatment options. And then I will further go into the more long-term treatment options, which can include those same ones. And then additionally, I'll add things like intrauterine devices, the arm implant, the contraceptive implant, and then surgical options. For the acute treatments, can you speak a little bit to the doses? Because I, I mean, I don't prescribe oral contraception that often, or, or most, a lot of my patients are on it and I'm just refilling it for them already. And it looked like for the, now we're talking about someone with acute bleeding, like they come in their off, the office like this patient and they're, they're asking us to stop the bleeding, not like, oh, I have heavy bleeding every month. Can you help me with that? So the, the estrogen, I was reading it's like 30 to 35 micrograms daily. And, and then for the progesterone, progestins, it's like five to 10 milligrams daily. Can you just speak to like what might be a typical prescription and how long they continue it in that acute setting? So again, we're never going to prescribe estrogen alone um, because then you're at risk of endometrial hyperplasia. And so you're essentially choosing between a progestin alone or a combined pill. If it's going to be a combined pill, honestly, I think you can choose any birth control pill on the market and you'll be fine. Most pills on the market are somewhere between 20 micrograms of estrogen and 35 micrograms of estrogen. And any of those would mm -hmm. be fine. 
it is possible to do a high dose pill birth control pill taper. And so what we'll do is actually have the start, have the patient start with like two pills a day or even one every eight hours for like 24 to 48 hours. The bleeding will significantly lighten and then you can taper down. If you started at three a day, you'll taper down to two a day for a while and then um, taper down to one a day and finish out the whole pack. The downside of that is that um, those doses of estrogen will really make people nauseous. So you just want to make sure they have an antiemetic available, like prescribe it with the antiemetic. And I would really reserve that for somebody who's um, really acutely, you know, bleeding much more heavily than this. If somebody who's soaking through multiple pads an hour, not, um, I think this patient was, you know, a tampon in two hours. So a tampon in two hours, I'm not worried about, you know, acute hemorrhage, blood loss. So for this patient, I think I would probably, you know, just start her on a regular pack of birth control pills, take one a day, and the bleeding's going to stop pretty quickly. If you're concerned about using estrogen because this patient's over 40, her BMI is a little higher, and you're worried about that VTE risk, then you can get the same effect from a progestin only. And so that would be the norethindrone acetate or the medroxyprogesterone and same thing, I would probably start with a taper with those. So like three a day, down to two a day, down to one a day. That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Very helpful. I ho- Hopefully this won't come up often <laughs> where I have to u- use this knowledge, but I'm sure uh, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners. So I, I think some people are going to have, have be seeing this situation more than I am where um, my patients tend to be on the older side. And so not, not as many young women. Molly, any other follow-up questions about this? Yeah, if if someone is bleeding that heavily, um, but they're hemodynamically stable, you got a hemoglobin and it's lowish, but they're okay. When do you think about um, like sending someone to the emergency room for IV estrogen, or does just, just doubling up on or tripling up on the oral work as well as IV? Yeah, I think the the role of emergency evaluation is for. Um, you know, vital sign instability, if you think somebody actually needs a blood transfusion, or they are actively hemorrhaging that much that I mean, probably if they're hemorrhaging that much, you're in blood transfusion territory anyway. And then that's where we start thinking about IV estrogen. Generally, I don't think it's a rule. But in my experience, we're considering IV estrogen in people who've already failed some sort of oral management. That's helpful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And I, I run into this a lot, you know, patients who are maybe already on birth control pills, but they're still having breakthrough bleeding that's heavy or something like that. And and sort of thinking about tranexamic acid, which has FDA labeling suggesting increased risk of thrombosis. And then the pharmacy doesn't like to give that with the oral contraceptives if, if it's an estrogen containing contraception. Um, how do you think about that? And is is that something that you co-prescribe or you really stay away from co-prescribing those? Um, I have co-prescribed them. I agree. I think the the labeling and then the the actual evidence are in conflict. And so I think it's an area where, you know, hopefully we will have more data in the uh, near future. I wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, originally a lot of the tranexamic acid use was in the orthopedic surgery population, which is, you know, tends to be a, a different population than what I'm seeing for acute heavy menstrual bleeding. And the reality is if somebody's bleeding that heavily, I think the benefits of stopping their bleeding outweigh the risks of 
um, you know, potential VTE. And I'm not going to say that that's a, like a black and white statement, but again, this is where shared decision-making and, and good patient counseling comes into play, but I certainly have co-prescribed them. And if someone has, you know, clear indications why they shouldn't be on an estrogen high VTE risk or active smoking and someone on, on the older side or migraine with aura potentially, how do you choose between using a progesterone only versus tranexamic acid? That's a good question. I think if they have a contraindication to estrogen, I am equally willing to offer either a progestin only medication or tranexamic acid. And often I'm talking to my patients about the logistics of how they're taken. So, you know, the progestin only medications are daily and it's probably going to be daily for the short to medium to long term, whereas the tranexamic acid is three times a day, but only for the first five days of your period. And so, you know, people will feel different ways about those options. With tranexamic acid, I'm unlikely to be able to predict no more bleeding, but it will make each of those days of bleeding significantly lighter. Whereas with many patients, I can get them to amenorrhea or no periods with progestin medications if they give me enough time and patience to work with it. We talked about various um, causes of abnormal uterine bleeding. And where, when we're talking about tran, tranexamic acid, for somebody that has abnormal uterine bleeding from like ovulatory dysfunction, in those cases, do you still consider NSAIDs and tranexamic acid? Because I, I know for heavy menstrual bleeding, like they're having their, their menses and it's heavy I know tranexamic acid, I've prescribed it and I've prescribed NSAIDs in those cases. Um, do they also work for other like structural causes of abnormal uterine bleeding that aren't related to menses? So I'm just trying to differentiate for myself and the audience, you know, like the nomenclature thing, as Paul and I were saying, the therapies we were just talking about, I think OCPs address many causes of abnormal uterine bleeding. The tranexamic acid, like for people who are bleeding, does that work? just if it's their menses that we're trying to slow down or let lighten, like decrease bleeding, or does it also work for other causes? I think in any situation where you would think about OCPs, you can also think about tranexamic acid. So, you know, you would not think about OCPs if somebody had a polyp. And so then I wouldn't think about tranexamic acid there either. But for any other cause of heavy menstrual bleeding, regardless of whether it's from fibroids or adenomyosis or PCOS, yeah, they would all work. All be good options. Thank you. Paul, am I, how, how are we doing here? Are no, you, fantastic. Are this is so extraordinarily helpful. No, this is great. <laughs> Molly, any other, any other treatments you wanted to ask about? No, I think that's great for the acute. And so just kind of moving on to more chronic treatment. Um, we started, Melissa, on whatever your favorite recommendation is after some shared decision-making. And um, she's really happy the bleeding stopped over the next couple of days. She really doesn't want to go through this again next month. And so how do we think about um, kind of continuing treatment for future prevention? So this is where, you know, that anticipatory guidance is really important. So say we stopped her acute bleeding with um, one of the progestin med medications, so like norethindrone. If and when she stops it, she will get a withdrawal bleed. And what I mean by that is we've been giving her progesterone and then she you know, stops taking it. That's the exact mimic of what happens in a normal menstrual cycle to trigger a menstrual period. So sometimes I get patients who say, oh, life was good. I stopped my bleeding and then I stopped the norethindrone and my period came right back. And 
I always sigh because that means somebody didn't, you know, counsel them appropriately. So you have to counsel people that whenever you stop that progesterone containing medication, you will get a period and that's normal. It hopefully will not be as heavy as the acute event that brought her into you originally, but it could be. And so sometimes people go, they sort of seesaw, you know, they'll be on a northendrone taper and then they taper off and then the bleeding comes back and they go back on and they go through this cycle until they get annoyed with it. Other people stay on the, the progestin, um, you know, maybe once a day indefinitely, and that's perfectly safe. But what I often find is that eventually um, some of the other side effects become annoying to them. So for instance, medroxyprogesterone in particular, I find makes people really moody and tends to make them bloated. Um, North and drone a little bit less, but it can also do that. And so eventually patients get fed up with those side effects. I do have some patients who have stayed on tranexamic acid long term, um, and that's great. So every month, you know, they take the tranexamic acid for five days. It controls their periods and they're heavy. But a lot of times I then have patients who want to transition to something else. So they either, you know, we're talking about intrauterine devices or the arm implant or surgical interventions. I don't think we mentioned it, but just regular combination oral contraceptive pills, those are also on the table as well, right? Just anyone that we want to prescribe on the market should should do the trick? Yes, yes. On a prior episode, we talked with a actually a hematologist about coagulopathy and heavy menstrual bleeding, and she was a big fan of the, the LARCs, as she was calling them, the long-acting mm-hmm. reversible contraceptives, just because it's so convenient and don't have to worry about taking it at the same time every day like you do with some of the other the the hormonal pills. What else is available? You you mentioned surgical options. So how do you counsel patients about that if like they're just not having luck despite long acting contraception or or the oral contraception? Yeah. Um, so the surgical options will vary depending on the oftentimes the size of the uterus is one consideration. So imaging would be important there. And then um, the patient's goals. Generally, with any surgical option, patients are are done with childbearing. And so that's an important question I always ask. But the surgical options um, include sometimes an endometrial ablation. And that's a procedure where through different mechanisms, depending on which device you use, you essentially burn away or ablate the lining of the uterus so that the endometrial lining can't build up again each month. Sometimes we will consider a myomectomy, which is surgical removal of just the fibroids, although generally it's not a great cure for heavy menstrual periods alone unless the um, patient is uh, desiring future childbearing. And I can talk about why if you're interested. And then uterine artery embolization or sometimes called uterine fibroid embolization is a great procedure done by the interventional radiologists. And so with that procedure, catheter is placed into one of the patient's either groin or sometimes arm vessels, and then under fluoroscopy is snaked up to the uterine arteries, and then they um, inject a material that blocks off those uterine arteries. And so because the uterine arteries are blocked off, the blood flow to the uterus is diminished and the blood flow to the fibroids are diminished. And so the fibroids will um, shrink and periods get lighter. 
Um, so I don't perform that, but um, you can refer to IR. I refer to IR. It's a great option for patients. And then finally, there's hysterectomy. So hysterectomy, I can guarantee somebody will have no more periods, but it certainly is major surgery and deserves, um, you know, full counseling. But as a surgeon, I, I enjoy performing it. So it's always on the table. <laughs> So let's do a quick recap and then we'll see what other what other questions we have. So we talked we just talked about basically the treatment. There's acute treatments, which is where we may put someone on two or three pills a day of an either a combined oral contraceptive pill or a progestin only pill. And uh and and that may help slow down the the bleeding and they would taper taper down on those. Or we could also prescribe tranexamic acid as part of that. And then we talked about in the long-term treatments, again, it would be potentially uh, an estrogen-containing estrogen oral contraceptive or a progestin-only pill. You mentioned sometimes patients with the progestin-only ones don't tolerate them as well because of moodiness or bloating. Um, and then we said tranexamic acid monthly is also an option there as well. And for patients who are not doing well with those therapies, uh, something like a long-acting reversible contraception, contraceptive, either an IUD or an implant could, could be an option. And then we talked about endometrial ablation, uterine artery ablation, or embolization rather, and then uh, hysterectomy is always on the table. Um, pun intended. I don't know if that's a... No, yeah, sorry, not, Paul. Let's not do that. <laughs> okay. I so, always take pictures of the uterus for the patients after I remove them. They always want to see it. So yes, we put yeah. it on the table and I take a picture. <laughs> I would too. I, I don't blame anybody for that. Molly, uh, what other what other questions do you have before we get to our take-home points? Absolutely. Well, uh, Mahali, anything that you see in referrals that you wish that internist or primary care was doing a little bit differently or, or mistakes that you see made frequently that you'd recommend we try to work on? One thing I want to make sure that nobody misses is getting a pap test up to date. So I think in the setting of abnormal bleeding, it's reasonable to do a diagnostic pap test. You know, if you guys are doing the pelvic exam already and you have the supplies to do a pap, it's great to go ahead and do that. You know, even if somebody has had a pap two to three years ago in the setting of abnormal bleeding, it would be appropriate to do a diagnostic one. Um, and certainly there have been cases of patients who think they're having heavy periods and they actually are bleeding from a you know cervical cancer. So that's always good to, to get up to date. And then I think, you know, another question is how quickly do people need to be, you know, referred to CG or how quickly does somebody need to get in with GYN? And I think this is also going to depend on your location and, you know, avail you know, everybody's availability for appointments. But it's totally reasonable to, you know, make friends with your local friendly area gynecologist. And, you know, I have colleagues who will um, text me and say, this is the situation, you know, or send me a message in the EMR and say, this is the situation. Do you think she needs to come in soon or is next available next month? Okay. And, and those are totally reasonable conversations to have. Because if somebody, for instance, has, you know, you've gotten things under control with, the norethindrone, but the patient knows she wants a hysterectomy, you know, we've got time to get her in for that appointment. But if you've already tried some oral meds and it's failing, then we probably need to get her in sooner. So great to have those conversations with you guys. Well, I think it's time to get take-home points so we can let you get back to your family this evening. And, and thank you so much for all your time and teaching. 
So if you had like two or three take-home points that you really wanted the audience to remember. Everybody can do pelvic exams. Please don't forget that part of your physical exam. Everybody can prescribe oral hormonal medicines and tranexamic acid, um, and everybody can order an ultrasound. And if you do those things for your patients, they will all be well taken care of. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> I am, I'm glad I waited this time. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. Yeah, they should check us out on YouTube as well, Paul, because we're uh, doing video now. Sure, yeah, if you want. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on YouTube. And you can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I want to give a special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto and Jen Watto run our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblain. Good night. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye.